CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. We got Adam Levine, Jensen Assey, Will Foxley. It appears to be Denim Shirt Friday on The Hash. Let's do it. Jen leads us off with a bit of cold water about the spate of recent Bitcoin ETF applications. What do you got, Jen? Well, first of all, I didn't get the denim shirt memo. So thanks a lot, guys. It's not denim. It's pro day. Sorry. Yeah, I see. I was excluded. Bros only, Jen. Bros only. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's talk about ETFs and some not so positive news this afternoon. The SEC says, Spot Bitcoin ETF filings are inadequate. The regulator told NASDAQ and CBOE that BlackRock, Fidelity, and other filings are not clear and comprehensive. This is according to a report by the Wall Street Journal. This after investors and analysts speculated that the bid by BlackRock could be a catalyst for a spot Bitcoin ETF in the US. Bitcoin tumbled below 30K. I believe it is back above. Zach. It all comes down to the surveillance sharing agreement, right? And that's what is reportedly in contention here. The SEC has long voiced concerns that the Bitcoin spot market is subject to market manipulation. And therefore, it's rejected a lot of previous Bitcoin ETF applications on those grounds. So the thing that got everyone all excited was that BlackRock had come to this surveillance sharing agreement with some major players in the space to make sure that they could, again, assuage some of the SEC's concerns about market manipulation and price manipulation in the spot Bitcoin market. Now, according to these sources, they didn't do it well enough. I guess it gives a little bit of room for these uh, these issuers to come back and say, no, here's how we can beef this thing up and meet your concerns. But it does sort of uh, counteract the recent narrative in the recent weeks that this was an inevitability because we had these things in place. It sort of suggests that, hey, maybe we might see another round of rejections which we've seen for years prior. So really interesting if these sources uh, do indeed uh, know this to be the case, that that's really what it's going to come down to is, again, these, these, uh, these surveillance sharing agreements that BlackRock, Fidelity, and others are baking into their applications this time around. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I honestly think that this is pretty fascinating. And I like it in many ways because it's kind of a lose-lose for the SEC right now. 
First off, it is worth noting that we found out that they were unhappy with this application like two weeks after the applications went in, like a week, week to two weeks after the applications went in. That's really atypical. Again, what has been normal for the SEC has been to drag these out, to delay them, and then they finally get to the spot where they can't delay it, and then they reject it. So this is kind of like, this is a little unusual just from that perspective. But look at it from the SEC standpoint, right, uh, through my cynical lens, which is that the SEC doesn't really want to have any spot Bitcoin ETFs, because when you have a spot Bitcoin ETF, unlike a futures ETF, it means that money that goes in to get exposure to Bitcoin is actually taking Bitcoin off of the market and is storing it in some place that all other things being equal actually adds demand to the equation. The SEC in the US doesn't really want that. They want Bitcoin to kind of just go away and these tokens to kind of just go away, especially Bitcoin, though, because they, they represent a threat in some ways. So when you're looking at these rejections, you have to kind of look at it through that lens. And when BlackRock comes and they apply and they have a, you know, a track record of like 500 approvals for every 100 rejection, you kind of like the assumption has to be there that they're going to approve it just because, again, history suggests that they will. So when you look at this situation, you're looking, again, a regulator that doesn't want to approve any of this type of instrument. And so they're looking for reasons to reject it. Now, the rejection itself was actually quite weak. Uh, you know, to the extent that the Wall Street Journal reporting is true, essentially what they said was, hey, tell us what the exchange is. Give us more details on the surveillance agreement. So that's not necessarily like, oh, no, this isn't allowed. That's like, hey, we want more details. So <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's actually very funny. And I'm quite curious to see how this plays out, because I think that the SEC is in large part trapped where they'll have to either acknowledge that they just don't want to do this, which they have not yet been willing to do. Or on the other side, they'll grant it to someone like BlackRock. And then kind of the, all the concerns that come along with it happen. So I think it's great. And I'm really into it. What do you think, Will? Yeah, I thought the same thing. Uh, same point with the delay here was kind of odd because normally there's a 75-day comment period where they have to like take it in, digest it, and then they can issue something. And historically, we've seen them drag it out to the end there, and then they reject it. And that's why it's taken so long historically to have these ETFs go through, right? So when we had the BlackRock one go through, we had multiple others also file. Fidelity being the latest one, right? That was a big news item last week, and it was confirmed yesterday. This issue seems to be around the surveillance agreement, according to the Wall Street Journal reporting. And I think that ties back into these market structures where Bitcoin exists on top of, right? So if you think about Coinbase or Binance or Huobi or OKX, the market makers for these markets are typically firms that tie in and start working on the back end and providing liquidity for market to trade. Sometimes, however, these exchanges do that themselves. That was a big thing with the Binance uh, SEC lawsuit that came out the other day, was that an entity uh, that is owned by Binance's CEO, CZ, is market making on top of Binance. And I don't think the SEC likes that. I don't think a lot of people like that in traditional exchanges where your market maker is also owned by the exchange, right? They might think that that's unfair. And so I think that is maybe what the SEC wants here is more information about who's creating this market, where the surveillance is coming from. My understanding is that Coinbase is the one providing this information on behalf of NASDAQ, and that seems to be it. But I think we, they want more information to be able to move this forward. Zach? Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. I saw Jen's hand, so I want to get her uh, on the record. What do you think, Jen? Yeah, I just wanted to say on the flip side of the coin, this atypical situation, Adam and Will, that, that you brought up could be good that the SEC has responded so quickly. I mean, asset managers now have time to like respond to these comments and refile. Previously, it's taken so many days. The entire process takes more than 200 days. And so I think that this atypical situation 
could mean that there is some change, could mean that there's some flexibility, and could mean that they're willing to work with those that are filing these ETFs. So I don't see it as a total negative sign just yet. And it looks like the market doesn't either. I mean, Bitcoin dipped just below 30K, but it's like it's back up. It's been there for weeks since we've learned about the filing of BlackRock's ETF. And so I'm waiting to see on what's going to happen with this one, Zach. I'm kind of with you on that, Jen. I think that my gut would sort of be along those lines as well, right? Like BlackRock, I think, is the largest ETF issuer in the world, right? They know the process. And this seems to be part of the engagement process with the SEC, potentially in terms of getting this thing over the line. But it really does boil down to the surveillance sharing agreement, as many have pointed out, with the BlackRock application and others. All right, let's change gears. Let's talk about Celsius. Remember them, the bankrupt crypto lender Celsius? We have a little update here in that case. The plan here is to convert all the other altcoins to Bitcoin or Ethereum before distributing them to various creditors. This is interesting, I think, because there is a little bit of subtext here that at least this court sees Ethereum or Ether, I should say, the native asset of the Ethereum blockchain as a non-security, as a commodity. That's been sort of hotly contested of late with Gary Gensler famously dodging the question in congressional testimony when asked, if Ether was a security, given his recent comments that pretty much everything except for Bitcoin was a security in the digital asset market. So that's a little bit of the subtext, but certainly potentially some good news, I think, for Celsius creditors. I'll throw this to Adam for his thoughts. What do you make of this story? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's I think it makes sense from an execution standpoint, right? Like there's nothing that's more difficult than trying to get somebody to offload a hundred different types of tokens that all use a different blockchain and all require a different wallet. A lot of people who are buying assets, you know, again, like don't even really maintain wallets for a lot of this stuff and they use exchanges as a proxy. Now, obviously, Celsius was a little bit different, but not substantially different. So from a simplicity standpoint, it makes sense. From a market dynamic standpoint, I think it represents some trouble times for some of especially the smaller tokens that they're holding uh, that will get liquidated. And I'm not even really sure it's in the best interest of the like the kind of end users who are going to be getting some of their capital back as a result of that, because Again, like a lot of times getting liquidated out, there's taxation, there's tax consequences. Like there's just, it, it makes it a little bit complicated. So I'm, I'm cognizant of that, but I think that it does make sense. And it, it definitely, again, is an improvement relative to what we've seen in the past where, you know, you've got, you know, Mt. Gox and Japan, you know, 2013 failure still, uh, still finding its way to unwind. And in some ways that's great. Again, like the, the keeping your crypto as like somebody who's in a coma, that's always a good strategy. But at the same time, the, the lack of that liquidity can really kind of hurt. So I think this is threading the needle. And it's one of the less dumb things we've seen in the, in the Celsius saga to date. Will? Yeah, I think a market's angle on this story. To me, the thing that popped out is the fact that Ethereum is being used as a liquidation asset here. All these other altcoins are just going to starve because the liquidity is going to be driving out of them, depending on what is in the Celsius filings as of now. And I'm not familiar with those. But all those tokens are going to be dumped onto the market moved into BTC or ETH. And that is bullish for both BTC and ETH. I don't know how much pressure is going to put on both those coins. But the fact that we have this big holding of altcoins moving into BTC and ETH means that those two assets as denominators and trading pairs are going to strengthen, right? And that's going to drive down altcoin markets. And we typically see this during bear markets, right? Where altcoin season is far in the rearview mirror. A lot of these coins die. They have no liquidity. People forget about them, move on to different projects. But typically, one or two survive, and they do well. Historically, that's been Bitcoin. But over the last three years, 
Ethereum has really popped up and been a coin that alongside Bitcoin has been able to uh, withstand any pressures from a bear market. Comparing 2018 and 2022, you can see that there's been a big difference in people's purview of what Ethereum is. In 2018, Ethereum fell by over 90% during that, that rough time, right? The coin was close to over $1,000, if not over $1,000 during the top of that market. And then it dropped all the way down to $80. This last time around, it went as high as 4000 And I think it dropped as low as about $800, but it's rebounded to about 1500 and held its position pretty well. I think that's because, Zach, not only are the, the legal rules seeing it as a commodity, but also traders and investors are seeing it as something else than all these other altcoins that are out there. Jen? Well, you kind of covered the question I was going to ask. I was going to ask Adam, you know, what this means for altcoin markets starting July 1st, if all of these coins are getting sold back into the market. But you answered me, so I'm going to bump pass it over to Zach. I, yeah, I mean... I don't know. Hopefully this provides closure pretty soon to Celsius's creditors. We saw on that little screen grab that at one point, 1.7 million customers called Celsius their home for crypto, which, ouch, sorry, guys. So hopefully a bit of closure for them. Again, I think the tax implications that Adam brings up about you know having these assets being forced liquidated into you know arguably more sound assets, but still you take that hit when you're getting those, uh, those funds back out. But it is interesting to see kind of the bankruptcy process wind its merry way, right? This is something that we're going to see for a number of firms. And Celsius kind of seems to be the one that's actually progressing in the most sane fashion. So this is an update for folks. Check it out. July 1, they're talking with the SEC, perhaps a bit more clarity on whether ETH is indeed a commodity in their eyes following the release of the Hinman documents and more. Regulation in the U.S. is a thorny subject. In fact, that's putting it mildly. Many crypto companies are pushing back, but one in particular known as Prometheum is taking a different approach and seemingly trying to stand out by saying that the SEC has in fact done enough, even if they haven't themselves yet secured permission to operate, and once they can operate, seem to have no significant tokens that they could actually enable for trade. Jen, why don't you start us off with this interesting story? This is just like a web that I can't wait to see what part gets untangled next. I think the Prometheum story is really interesting. Aaron Kaplan has been very public on his stance on the crypto industry. You know, he says that if you just treat everything as a security, you won't have any issue with the SEC. He's been on, he's been on first mover twice saying exactly this. Um, and the last hearing that he was at, you know, he confirmed that Bitcoin and Ether won't be listed on Prometheum when they are finally available to the public. And that is the majority of the crypto industry. So there's a lot to untangle here. You know, of course, there's the conspiracy theorists that feel like Kaplan, um, you know, is out there uh, projecting a certain narrative. But I think it's also important to hear the other side of the story. And I want to point to this tweet from Preston Byrne, lawyer Brown Rudnick. He said um, a few weeks back, Aaron has been working on Prometheum since at least 2015, comes from a family of lawyers that has a law firm in Manhattan named for them and has a view on tokens consistent with that background. There's nothing fishy here. It's just nobody noticed him until this week. A lot of responses to this tweet talked about, you know, meeting Aaron at conferences years back and he's been working on Prometheum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that the discussion around Prometheum, though, really gets us anywhere with regulation when we look at some of the tokens that have um, been in some of the previous filings. You know, they're not tokens that are widely traded or even widely known. Um, and it doesn't get us to a place where we actually understand what securities are. You know, some of the tokens that are mentioned in the previous filings, the projects themselves have come out and said, these are not securities. So 
not only does it feel like Prometheum and, and Aaron Kaplan are defending themselves against the, the rest of the industry, but it's, it seems like maybe some of the token projects they hope to deem as securities as they move forward with the SEC, they'll be up against the projects that are actually issuing those tokens. So like I said, a big web, and I can't wait to see which, which part gets un- untangled next. Will, what do you think? I think this guy is playing everyone like a fiddle. That's what I think. <laughs> he went against the grain and now everyone has a splinter in their finger and is a little upset about it, but we're talking about them, right? So go back to Preston Burns' tweet here. He said he's known about Prometheum for years. He's known about Aaron for years. Nobody else in crypto really did, though. But now we do know about them and we've had them on First Mover twice. They've been on Unchained podcast. They went to Congress and talked in front of everybody getting so many different follow-up interviews. And that's going to bear fruit, even if people don't like what they're doing right now. So I think this is a very smart media strategy. And I think they're going to continue to push it. They might not even agree with what they're saying with the SEC stuff, right? Like maybe that is something we could take them at face value and say like, that's what he thinks is the rule of law. And they think it's being fairly applied. But my meta take on this is this is a firm that is trying to build market fit in a very crowded room. And the best way to do that is to say something that, you know, uncomfortable to a lot of people and look how much tension they're going to get. We see the same tactic time and time again with a lot of people in crypto. And a lot of those people in crypto, not a lot of people like because they're saying things that are uncomfortable and a lot of people don't think they're genuine. But those people often get market fit because they get attention for the first time. So that is my meta take on this whole story. Adam? Yeah, I think that's an interesting take on it. And I think that it's a plausible take on it. But to me, the explanation here could be a lot more simple. The telling part about it is that once they actually get approval to operate, they won't be able to list Bitcoin or Ethereum. And this kind of illustrates the whole problem with the SEC's approach, which is that the SEC regulates securities. So if they are are regulating an exchange, then that exchange is trading security. And a security can be a registered security, it can be an unregistered security, but they are fundamentally securities. And the, the conceit that is acknowledged here, you know, by not being able to list Bitcoin and Ethereum is that not everything is a security. And by nature of not everything being a security, effectively, you're, you're separating the world into cryptocurrencies over here, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which these exchanges will not be able to trade because they're not securities. And then over here are tokens that look like securities and they will be able to trade but only with the constraints that are, are around securities, which include you can't transfer them in many circumstances if it's a Reg D exemption for a year. You know, you can only own them or trade them or do anything with them if you're an accredited investor who has a net worth of over a million dollars, not including your primary house or other kind of factors. So like that's the crazy part about it is that this is actually an acknowledgement that what Coinbase and to a lesser extent, uh, Robinhood and other platforms are saying is correct, which is that hey, even if we do everything that the SEC says that they want us to do, that actually would mean that we would become security exchanges and not crypto exchanges anymore. We would not be able to operate in our current core business, which seems like it's kind of a big problem for a regulator that says that everything fits within their rules. But Zach, what do you think? Big bad Aaron Kaplan. Yeah, he's certainly everyone's favorite punching bag these days. A lot of spicy uh, commentary around the Unchained podcast that Will mentioned with the general counsel from Paradigm. And the, the lawyer on that show was basically arguing to Aaron Kaplan and Prometheum that, hey, great, you have a license, you don't have a business. And that, yeah. I think, is what a lot of people are commenting on. They're saying, well, you've sort of, sure, you got this special pro- purpose broker-dealer license, but you've also entered into a catch-22 where your business ultimately may, may be harmed by the thing that you think is going to unlock this yeah. massive wave of investment. And I think that's a fair point. And I think that's something that people are uh, really locking in on. 
uh, as Prometheum goes out there and says, hey, this is the compliant path for crypto trading in the United States. And people are saying, well, if you look into it, that's, that's not great. You're basically saying that it can't function for the two largest assets right. in the market, which is a big problem. So yeah, I would definitely check out that podcast. It's a spicy one. The general sort of tone, I think, from Kaplan and the Prometheum crew that the rest of the crypto world is a bunch of scoff laws, as the Paradigm Special Counsel put it, is rubbing people the wrong way and is fueling the interest, attention, and drama around this story, as Will mentioned, whether that's going to serve them in the long run or not, and simply alienate them from the community of users and potential partners. I think that's probably the big question going forward for Prometheum once it can start to be functional. But hey, who knows? I mean, well, I think you got get... the last story of the day. I do. I do. Last comment. You can't get customers if people don't know who you are. And look, everyone knows who they are now. <laughs> okay, let's go over to the next story. If you missed out on the first wave of Melania Trump NFT, <laughs> but you want to buy more, we have a story for you. They're launching the 1776 collection on Solana. $50 a piece at $3,500. Unique NFTs celebrating America's history. These NFTs are coming to a market near you. Adam, you purchased a Trump NFT. Would you purchase a Melania Trump NFT? I don't think so. I think why? That there's... I need to know why. Like, what's the difference between He's a Donald Trump NFT and a Melania Trump NFT for you? I mean, I like doing things first, and it was funny. So, like, honestly, <laughs> like most of my most of my investment decisions in the world of crypto follow this rubric. I will I will warn you and not suggest that you follow it, <laughs> but. But this is again like this is this is a sequel and there's nothing wrong with sequels but honestly it's a sequel to a movie I didn't even really like that much. So I figure I'm going to let other people go after this one. The questions that I have when I look at something like this really are how much is this worth to you know like cuz with the last deal and I assume with this one as well these are effectively licensing deals, right? Where you have a popular brand that speaks to a certain cohort of people which is a very large cohort of people here in the US. And people are looking for how do you get someone involved with NFTs on the Solana blockchain for the first time, right? Polygon was kind of the last one. So it does make sense to go after these things. But my question is, what does it actually pay? What is it worth to sort of the subjects who are licensing their likeness in order to do these? And what do those deals look like? That would be fascinating to find out. We're obviously not going to. But honestly, that's, that's like my big question about this. <laughs> what do you think, Jen? Well, there were a couple of Melania Trump NFT projects. I, I went back and like did some digging when I saw oh, really? we talk about the story because mm -hmm. I remember the eyes one, but there was another one in between. And then there was a she auctioned an NFT and it sold for a bunch of money. But then a report came out that said it was a wallet that was actually attached to her that purchased that. So Melania has <laughs> been, you know, She's being very crypto. Yeah, exactly. Melania is <laughs> an undercover DJ here. Um, and now she has a new NFT collection. I wonder who's who's going out there and buying them. I mean, they are only $50 and you can get them with a credit card when you click on it. So maybe there are Melania fans who are going to learn a little bit about the Solana ecosystem <laughs> by buying these. But Zach, I see you smirking over there and I saw your hand up. So I know you probably have a spicy take on this. First of all, we need to make Will do all the NFT story intros because yesterday's intro was an all-timer. He's like, do you like <laughs> lawn art and NFTs? We have the story for you. And he just did that on this story as well. So yeah. I think we need to make that happen. This is like the future of fan engagement, as like silly as it sounds, right? This is all it is. It's fan engagement. The Trump family has a long history of licensing their likeness to be on various forms of merchandise. This is like us kind of talking about like whether or not like 
the uh, the Trump family like presidential like dinner plate is a really cool thing. We're just <laughs> NFT exactly. and crypto nerds. Exactly. So we end up talking about it as though it means something. But really, it's just a tchotchke. And some people want to have a digital tchotchke. Others would rather have it on their dinner table to look at or maybe in the fine China closet that never opens but has a glass window in front of it. So this is really kind of think what this is. And I think it is something that ultimately supports the long-term use case for NFTs sticking around, right? Commemorative items are a big business. They're not sexy, exciting, or even worth commenting on most times, but they're here for the long haul and they probably bring in a lot of money in aggregate. So the fact that we're seeing this with NFTs makes a ton of sense and actually is bullish that some of these mainstream figureheads are being like, well, yeah, we did it once. Let's not, let's try it again. Let's see what happens. And um, maybe that is going to be like why NFTs stick around because people like tchotchkes, even digital ones. Got to give it to Will. Close this out. What do you think about this one? I got a few thoughts. I'll leave it with the first Trump NFT stack did really well. But when he released a second, it was not great for hodlers of the first one. So perhaps in this case, we see a repetition of the past. I'm not saying short these NFTs. But it's not looking great for any Trump NFT holders out there. The market is looking a little sour. But we can close out there, Zach. Well, when the Baron Trump NFT drops, guys, get ready. That's going to be hot. There we go. The man is tall. All right. That's it for the show today. That's it for the show this week. We're The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. That's Adam Levine, Jen Sinassi, Will Foxley. Thanks so much for being on Coindesk TV with us. Check us out as well on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We wish you a happy weekend. Have a great one out there. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.